Father, we think about what Jesus taught us. He said, when you pray, pray like this. And then he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. He didn't say if you pray, he said when you pray. And, and we believe that you're a God that is in charge of everything. We believe that nothing can touch us unless it comes through your hand. We don't always understand why you allow the things to hit us that hit us. But we, we believe in your power and we believe in your sovereignty and in your absolute control. And even in the midst of, of scriptures that tell us you are in absolute control and in absolute charge, we are told to pray. And to us, the first thought in our minds, well, why would we pray if God's already got a plan? That's just beyond us. We won't get that one on earth. That's just one of those where we obey. You do have a plan. You know exactly what's going on in our lives. And that includes the good and the bad of our lives. And in the midst of it, you have told us to pray and to come to you. So we do. We lay it all out before you. You know what's going uh, on uh, around us and inside of us. You, you know the guys that had trouble sleeping last night because of anxiety. And you know the guys who slept like a baby. Well, we're, we're all in different positions and we're all under um, different circumstances. But we've all got something. We, we all have something, Lord, that drives us to our knees and drives us to you. We're grateful that we know about you. We're grateful that we know about Jesus. Not everybody in this world does. But you have worked. You have initiated a work. You, you have opened our blind eyes and you have shown us the truth of Christ. And you have given us your word. And, and that word stabilizes us. That word gives us hope. That word gives us courage when we run out of gas. That, that, that word does many things in our lives. It encourages us. At times it rebukes us. It trains us. It equips us. And, and here, Lord, we believe in the power of your word. And we believe in your spirit that your spirit will take the word of God and apply it individually to each guy tonight. We would pray for Paul and his family as they grieve the loss of uh, his father. We thank you, Lord, for the comfort that we find in the scriptures uh, when we encounter death. And we thank you that you conquered death. We would pray for those guys that are struggling, Lord, in their, in their work. We'd pray for the guys who are out of work. And they're trusting you to make ends meet. And they're wondering why they haven't heard back from this company or from this company and they're wondering how long they're going to have to wait we pray that you'll encourage them we pray that you will show yourself strong on their behalf and meet every need as you have promised to do we pray for those who are struggling in their marriages and are pondering uh, steps they never thought they'd ponder divorce was never an option but perhaps the pressure has gotten so great and the disappointment has gotten so great that they're actually thinking of the unthinkable. 
and everybody around us says it's okay, and the world says it's okay, just go ahead and do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. For that man tonight, we pray that you will steady him and stabilize him and remind him of uh, his commitment. And Lord, there are exceptions where there are biblical grounds, but so much of divorce today does not meet what the scriptures have to say. Don't let us be foolish and don't let us run away just because we don't believe you can do a good work. Lord, we could pray about a hundred different things. We simply just sum them up and bring them to you and tell you that we are needy, that we are dependent. Uh, we, we just take a minute here and bow. We, we take a minute and, uh, and submit. We remind ourselves that you are the king and we are not. And we yield and we trust you and your character that you will work on our behalf. We, we thank you that the good work which you have began in us, you will bring to completion. That's our hope. Teach us tonight. Instruct us. That's, that's the job that, uh, that only your spirit can do in a way that uh, is life-changing. He has never failed to do that. So we pray all these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times have you heard someone say, there are just too many hypocrites in the church? You hear that in different forms and in different ways and in different expressions. We hear it all the time. Well, you know, I, uh, I, I just, I don't go to church anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. Well, well why is that? Well, well, there are just too many hypocrites in the church. Or someone will say, yeah, yeah, you know, I would maybe work with somebody. Yeah, I was raised in church, but I don't go to church anymore. Well, why is that? Well, there are just too many hypocrites in the church. Uh, we hear that over and over and over and over again. There are just too many hypocrites in the church. And in actuality, there are too many hypocrites in the church. Uh, a, a hypocrite, contextually, when we hear that term being used, is someone who presents themselves in a certain way and in a certain light. They use certain language. They have certain um, behaviors. They have a certain uh, countenance about them in church which gives you a certain impression about how they actually live out their lives when they're not in church. And what happens is, and we've all had experience with this, we have met someone, we have interacted with someone, and they were Joe Church. They were Joe Evangelical Christian. They... They had the look, they had the clothes, they knew all the hymns, knew all the verses, never opened a hymnal, had them memorized, they just had it down. And then you got close to them, and then you started interacting with them, and you were kind of shocked and you were kind of stunned. Because 
what the public demeanor was, was left at church, and whether it was in a business deal or uh, working side by side, their behavior was absolutely contrary to what they supposedly were. And it can be, it can be uh, shocking. It can be extremely disappointing. It, it can kind of throw you uh, the first time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time. But about the fifth or sixth time you run into this, you start getting jaded. And you start getting a little cynical. I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty, pretty jaded. I'll give you an example. Uh, if, I'm, if I've got to have a certain kind of repairman and I don't know anybody in that field and they don't know anybody they can recommend to me and I turn to the yellow pages, here's how jaded I've gotten. If I see someone who's got an ad and they got a fish sign, I'm not going to call them. Now, that's pretty sad. I mean, that's real sad because I've just dealt with too many people that had fish signs in their yellow page ad. And they came at, came out, and they interacted, and they did this, and then they go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I remember the one guy that, and I got to really couch this, who, because um, he may be here tonight. <laughs> I'm kind of looking around as I'm talking here. <laughs> I don't see him. Um, but he, uh, he, he showed up and, um, had some great Christian bumper stickers and, um, had, uh, what else did he have? Had a bumper sticker. I think he had a, uh, Jesus tattooed on his forehead, something. He, he, he just, he was very obviously a Christian. I mean, this was a big deal to him. And, uh. Uh, came in, looked around, and as we were talking, uh, handed me a, a, some kind of religious piece of literature. Um, and he actually was recommended, and so we agreed to do this. And uh, he would spend time before he got, he'd show up, and then before he'd work, he would walk around the house, and he would pray for the house. I needed him uh, to fix the thing in there is what I needed. I'll walk around the house and pray. You fix the deal. Uh, he said he'd have it done on this date for this cost. And he uh, sadly, sadly, and poorly miscalculated uh, by several thousand dollars. And then expected me to come through and was, I'm going to say, a good two months late in completing it. And then expected me, ne never talked, you know, never completely expected me to pay that instead of what he said it would be. And never thought a thing about it, never thought that was unusual, just assumed. And, um, oh, I could tell you some more, but. I'll stop there because I'm starting to get depressed all over again. <laughs> How many times have we seen this happen? I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, when someone comes in and they're so 
glaringly Christian. They advertise it. Uh, they got the mug with the fish sticker. They, they, every, everything has got a logo. Um, and, then, and, and, and then what they so loudly preach is not adhered to by the practicality of their life. You've got a problem there. That is a lack of integrity. That's a lack of congruency because the pieces don't add up. Now, it can get a lot more serious than that. You can be a big-time preacher in a big-time megachurch, uh, be on television, and at the same time be meeting with a gay prostitute in hotel rooms. That's pretty serious. That's pretty hard to excuse. That's pretty hard to rationalize. Uh, you've seen it, and I've seen it. And, and it, it, it seems like it's just not too much time that goes by between these um, um, revelations of high-profiled Christians who are living absolutely contrary to how they are preaching. I remember seeing Jimmy Swagger one night, just, just waxing eloquent, sweat pouring from every pore of his body against sexual immorality. And the very next week, the very next week, it all came out. And then we wonder why people say there are hypocrites in the church. People say there are hypocrites in the church because there are hypocrites in the church. Now, we're in the book of James, but I'd like to begin tonight at Matthew chapter 7. And what we're going to do, I'm still camping in the early verses of James. If you've been with us, you said, well, you were there last week, and you were there the week before, and you were there the week before. And I would say you're very astute. <laughs> and I'm going to be there again tonight. Because there's a lot of juice in the early verses of James. One of the things that you see in the early verses of James, but don't go to James yet, we're going to go to Matthew 7. One of the things that you see um, there is, I think that you see an antidote. You see a medicine. Uh, I could tell you stories about hypocrites in the church, and you could tell me stories about hypocrites in the church. People you've interacted with, people that you have talked with, people that perhaps you put on a pedestal when you were a young Christian, and then they just uh, grievously disappointed you because of a, a lapse of character and behavior in their lives and all that. We could all tell stories. They're everywhere. Now, here's what concerns me, though. Here's what concerns me, is that these hypocrites... These hypocrites, when you talk with them, when you interact with them, so often they don't realize that's what they are. I mean, if you were to say to them, do you realize you're a hypocrite? They'd deny it. They don't view themselves that way. To them, there's congruency. To them, there's integrity. To, to them, all the pieces add up. Now, some of them are not far enough down the road, and they still can sense conviction of the Holy Spirit. But some of them are so far gone I, I, I will never forget the big-time pastor. Um, and I was speaking at the same conference with him. This, this was really the first time I had always pastored small churches. And I, when I pastored, I could never get a church over 300. 
In fact, I, a couple times I took churches that were 300 and took them to 150. <laughs> I did that at least twice. So that's not my real strong suit. Uh, I didn't mean to get off on that, but I, I'm just reminded that was the truth. Um, and even in getting off on that, I got lost because I'm just grieved by how poorly I did in those churches. But oh, oh. So anyway, when I wrote when I wrote Point Man, and that just came out, I was invited to speak at this conference, and and uh, there are several guys speaking there, and uh, well, I'm seated. Uh, at a table, and there was this pastor, and I'd, I'd read a couple of his books, and he had a big church, and big program, and discipleship, and missions, and all this, and, and he's there with his wife, and I'm there, you know, and we're talking, and getting to know each other, and he's all excited, because right after he speaks this evening, he's going to Korea, to some church, you know, with 12 million people, or something, and, you know, I don't know, it's an amazing story, you know, his ministry was growing, and flourishing, and all that, and, you know, his wife's there, and we're talking, and interacting, and sharing the scriptures, and and then about two weeks later, it comes out that he's got an ongoing eight-year affair with some gal in his church. Sucker's looking you right in the eye. And he's lying through his teeth. I got all kinds of hypocrite stories. And somehow, this guy was able to rationalize his life and feel comfortable in that setting. Uh, probably had slept with her the night before he flew in there with his wife, going to get up and teach the Word of God and then go to Korea and minister. Somehow he had found a level of comfort. And I think if you were to talk with him, he would have trouble following what you were trying to say to him because of the rationalization that had taken place in his own mind. In Psalm 19, David asked the Lord to protect him from presumptuous sins. We all have blind spots. What I'm saying is I think a lot of these people that are hypocrites they would not view themselves as hypocrites. And you know what that means? You know what that means? That means potentially I could be one of them and not know it. And so could you. See, if you're sitting here and thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not one of them, you probably could be one of them. You may be one of them. Because we're all prone to it. Um, there's an old hymn that says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Now, there is an antidote to hypocrisy. There is a medicine that God gives to keep us from hypocrisy and from living double lives. That is the opposite of the goal of the Christian life. Paul says we make it our ambition to present every man mature, to present every man complete. The Lord wants to grow us. He wants to take us to the next level, and then the next level, and then the next level. But when you're in hypocrisy and, and you're a double-minded man and you're living a private life different from your public life and you're hiding things, well, that is the absolute opposite of what the Lord is seeking to do in our lives. But we're all prone to that stuff. I want to show you something in Matthew 7. It's kind of chilling to me. In... Uh, In Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and then 7. Beginning with verse 15, the Lord says this. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That means they look like they go to First Baptist. 
that means they look like they go to uh, Stonebriar Community Church. They look like us. They talk like us. They sing like us. They know the inside jokes. They know all the stuff. They're one of us. They look like they're one of us. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You go, gosh. Well, well how, do you, how, do you, how do you know? The, how do you check those guys out? Well, Jesus immediately deals with that. You will know them by their fruits. You won't know them by their talk. You won't know them by their dress. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by what comes out of the way they live. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Did you get that? A good tree can't produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, here, here, this, this is chilling. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a little chilling. That tells me there are not only false prophets, but there are false believers. Would you not make that deduction from this text? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And what's interesting is Jesus does not dispute that they did this. Lord, didn't we do all these amazing, wonderful things in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a staggering statement. And you know what we think? We think, oh, yeah, here and there, there are a few bad apples. You know what Jesus said? He said, many will say to me. He didn't say a few. Many. And let me tell you something. If you can prophesy, if you can cast out demons, if you can perform miracles, let me tell you something. You're in the elite. You're one of the boys with a platinum card, ministry-wise. I mean, you're the cream of the cream. Those are the guys that get the big churches and the big this and the big that. And the... Many will say to me. They look like the real thing, but they're not. And how do you know that they're not? You look at the fruit of their lives. Now, with that in mind, let's turn over to James chapter 1. The false prophets here are hypocrites. And in James 1, and you know, guys, isn't it always easy? Have you noticed how there are so many screwed up Christians? I mean, can I say that? I think I just did. <laughs> have you noticed, I mean, really, how many Christians have, have issues? How many Christians have serious stuff? Aren't you glad that's not you? We've all got our stuff. We've all got our issues. We're, we are all terribly flawed people. 
Uh, we, we have a tremendous ability to self-deceive. We really do. Mary was asking me, um, we, were, we were talking last week, and um, we were talking about a situation where, about a particular guy that we have known for quite a while. And if you met this guy, you'd be really impressed with him. You'd love him. Goes to a real strong Bible-leaving church. Family looks great. Um, says the right things, you know, shows up at the right Bible studies, all that stuff. But he has, he has significant integrity issues in his own home. He has significant issues with his wife and how he treats her and how he speaks to her. Uh, his kids now are starting to hit the teenage years. And they're starting to have real issues with him because they're seeing a real lack of credibility. And they don't understand why he, why he is that way at church and this way at home. And they're getting a little jaded and they're getting a little cynical. And when they were young, he didn't have to deal with it, but now he's having to deal with it. And Mary and I were talking about this. And I will say this to you. I will say this. We've been watching this for a long time. And I will say this to you. In the last year, this guy has had a complete turnaround. A complete turnaround. And, and you know why we know it? Because his wife has said it. She, she's a little bit in shock. And, she's a, and it's almost too good to be true. But God took this guy through some really, really hard stuff. And crushed him. And, and by so doing... Um, I'm not saying this guy was a false believer. I'm not saying that at all. I think he really knows the Lord. And one of the reasons is, is the fruit that has come out of the difficulty in his life. He has it took a lot to crack this nut. It took years. And as I watched him, I wasn't sure it was going to, ever going to happen. But he got, uh, he got crushed. And he has responded. And God's doing some just really great things in his family. When his wife talks about him now, she tears up. Not out of grief, out of joy. Amazing. I think for a long time, if you had a talk with him about the disconnect in his own life, the way he was at church and the way he was at home, he wouldn't get it. He gets it now. Because God applied the antidote to him. And he's applied it to most of us in this room. The antidote, let's go back to James 1, verse 2. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect or, or mature, actually, is, is, the, is the idea. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, we, we've been taking this apart for the last few weeks. How can you, a trial comes, how in the world can you consider it joy because nobody in their right mind enjoys a trial? It's obviously 
something here, if you read the text carefully, when a trial comes, you don't experience it as joy. You don't feel it as joy. It's not an emotion. It's a thought process. When a trial comes, as we said last week, you got to take a step back. We tend to, we, tune, we tend to zoom in on the trial, focus just right up close to the pain and the disappointment. The only way you can consider or think a trial as joy is to back up, is to zoom out and look at the big picture and understand, wait a minute, this could not touch me, this could not come into my life unless God was behind it. Therefore, there must be some purpose, there's something he's attempting to do in my life through this thing that I don't like and I don't enjoy and that I want out of. That's the only way you can consider or think something as joy that you don't like. God's at work here. That's, that's what's going on. I've been a Christian long enough to know what's, what's up here. He, he, says, he says the only way you could ever think it as joy is to consider the trial as a testing of your faith. I always like the old westerns when a guy walks into a bar and he throws down a, a gold piece. And the bartender, who's a little jaded, when the guy takes his drink and walks over the table, the bartender takes the gold and goes, he bites it. If you uh, drop by a jewelry store the next few days, find a gold bracelet for your wife or a gold necklace, and it says 14 karat gold on it, or 24 karat gold, or whatever the ranking is, and, uh, and then you... Uh, you leave it in the back seat in a box and overnight and you don't come out to the car the next day and it's gotten up to 70 degrees, 75 degrees, as can happen around here. And, and you think, oh, I, I left that. And you go to get it and you open the box and there's melted yellow stuff all over the box. Uh, you should have bit the necklace before you bought it. Um, There's an idea here. How do you know it's 14 karat? How do you know it's 14 karat gold? Well, somebody tested it. How do you know it's 24 karat gold? Somebody tested it. And see, this is what happened when trials come into our lives. Our faith, our faith, that which we say we believe, that which we sing about, that which we, uh, you know, we'll, we'll share about. See, it's all fine, well, and good to talk about it. But that faith is going to be tested. The same concept is found if you flip to the next book to the right, if you flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, beginning with verses 6 and 7. It says this, In this now, in this you greatly rejoice, even though, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. I like that word distressed. Because that's, that's what happens when trials come into our lives. They distress us. They stress us out. You ever get tired of being stressed? Man, I'm kind of stressed. Everybody's stressed. Well, if you're a Christian, you know what? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, can I tell you something? The scriptures say you're going to be distressed. And as we'll see in a minute, we're always surprised when that happens. And there's actually a scripture later in this letter that says don't be surprised that you're stressed because the Christian life is a hard life. The Christian life is a tough life. 
That's just the way it is. I had a conversation with uh, uh, earlier today with a guy in his early 30s, loves the Lord, involved in ministry, and he was sharing uh, with Lou and I just where he is in life and what's going on. And he's probably 32, 33, and uh, he made the statement. He said, when I was younger, I thought that when I got to this place in life, I thought it would get easier. And it kind of said, really? He said, but it's not easier, it's harder. And he, and he alluded to the fact, something like, I wonder how long that's going to go on. And I thought, let's see, what are you, 32? I'd say maybe another 60 years. It's a hard life, this Christian life. Don't anybody con you. It's not easy, it's hard. Now, there's a life that's harder, and that's the life without Christ. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. When we suffer as believers, we never suffer randomly. It's never by luck, just, oh, gosh, it's not my day. No, that's not it. It's not you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, that's, as a believer, you're never in the wrong place at the wrong time. Technically, now you can choose sin, then you're in the wrong place. Um, these trials come from the Lord. Now, now catch this. this. This Peter text is so similar to James. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, same idea in James, so that the proof of your faith or the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Hmm. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, the genuineness of your faith, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable. You know what? I forgot something I needed. I got this, and I got this, and I got this, but I forgot what I needed. And I really need it. So you know what? I'm going to go to my next point, but Lou, could you do me a favor? Those of you who are listening by tape, I screwed up. <laughs> Lou, uh, let me give you this. Oh, you know what? It's in the other car. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. <laughs> what I was going to do, boy, I really screwed up. What I was going to do was I, I was going to read a section to you. Uh, I don't usually read my own stuff, but a few years ago I did a book called Tempered Steel, and in there I talk about, and I quote, um, uh, a gentleman who writes about the process by which they make steel. But before you, you can make steel, you first got to have iron. And in order... To get iron, uh, you put it in a, in a, in a blast furnace. And, and some of those are three, four, five stories high. And you take uh, iron ore, and you take coke, and you take a couple other things, uh, many of which are alloys and have impurities, and you put them in this, this huge furnace. And then what you do is you turn up the heat. And you turn up the heat 
to uh, 3,000 degrees. And, and now that's a lot of heat, 3,000 degrees. And then what happens is, in that process, in that process, what happens is the iron then sinks to the bottom. The impurities rise to the top. The impurities are called slag. And in that process, in that blast furnace, the impurities, after a certain period of time, as the ore goes to the, the iron goes to the bottom, the impurities go to the top, and the slag, the impurities will be three to four feet deep. Now that's what's going on in our life. There are impurities. Thank you. Yeah, that's all right. It, it's not that. In fact, I think Lou went to look for one. That's okay. Um, wasn't that good a writing anyway, quite frankly. That's why that book didn't do well. But Yeah. You see, that's what's going on, guys. The testing of our faith. What, what, is this, what is this section saying? That the proof of your faith, the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is per perishable, even though tested by fire. In other words, here's what God does. He saves us from hypocrisy. I don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to be a hypocrite. All right, so what is the antidote to hypocrisy since we all still have sin that lives within us? Well, before we come to Christ, we've used this illustration. Before we come to know Christ, sin runs our lives and rules us. It's like the Incredible Hulk. We're intimidated. We've got to do whatever the Incredible Hulk says. But when Christ comes into our lives, he breaks the power of sin. And the Incredible Hulk becomes an emaciated, sick, old man in a wheelchair with an IV in his arm. After we come to Christ, then we have to make a decision every day of our lives with that old man who's still around, who's still hanging around us. The Incredible Hulk has become a sick old man initiated with an IV. What we have to decide every day after we come to know Christ is, am I going to feed this guy? Do I feed him or do I starve him? What happens is in our lives is that um, what, what happens with us is that we all have the potential to live that double life to say this, to act this way, to, to, as we call it, play the game. But it's not coming out in our lives. The antidote to that kind of disease of sin, the antidote are trials that turn up the heat in your life. And what they do is, when the trials come and the fire comes, what it does is, it brings the impurities out so that it can be scraped off. That's how we become mature. That's how God puts iron in our souls. That's how he begins the process of maturing us, is taking us through trials and hardship, and we don't want to be there. You'd be crazy to have to want to be there. See, this is the part that trials and suffering play in the Christian life. And you're saying, gosh, you know, Steve, this isn't real positive. I like that positive thinking stuff. Well, go somewhere else. Now, it's not that we walk around being pessimist, but if all you want to do is, is read little booklets from Hallmark card stores, you're not going to grow. I, I walk in there about twice a year in the Hallmark. I'll walk in there later this week, and um, I walk in some other time. Oh, for Mary's birthday. About twice a year I go in there. And I'll see, and they're really nice stores, and they're frilly, and they're rosy, and they smell good, and all that stuff. And you know, um, I just feel better when I walk in there. I, I just, I'm more in tune with uh, something. And, and, and I, anyway, 
But they'll have these little, they'll have a rack of books, of little inspirational books. Um, that aren't real threatening. That are just sort of, they're sort of, they're sort of nice. Um, sermonettes. Uh, little talk with God. Little talks with God. Well, you know what? When you're two years old, it's okay to have a little talk with God. But you're 58, man. You need to get past the little talk with God. You need to get in the Bible. Have a long talk. Right? Because we're supposed to grow up. We're supposed to mature. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? They got all this frilly, Christian, feminized nonsense in there. You're not going to grow off that stuff. So how do you grow? You grow, you grow by eating gravel. That's how you grow. This is horrible. I don't like this trial. I don't like this hardship. I don't like this disappointment. This is not where I want to be. Join the club. But this trial, you know what this trial is doing? This trial is saving my life from my propensity to go over here. It's my propensity and it's your propensity. It's not until we get to heaven that I think we'll see that we'll see the goodness of God in the trials that we have gone through. Because we'll see where we could have been and where we could have gone and what the inclinations of our hearts were, even as believers. So God sends these trials and these hardships which, which, just, which just devastate us and just wear us down and we get tired of it. So I'm sorry, you want a positive thinking thing? You know, there are other places you can go for that. I, I don't, you know what, let me tell you something. I don't need positive thinking, I need truth. That's what I need. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you continue in positive thinking, you shall know the truth. <laughs> Remember that verse? He said, if you continue in Norman Vincent Peale, that's not what he said. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You say, man, Steve, you know, the last few weeks you've been talking a lot about trials. That's because they're pretty normal in the Christian life. And we get weary, and we get tired, and we start to think, what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. God is at work in your life. And when you're a new believer, especially you're kind of shocked by all this because you got this idea, you come to Christ and everything's going to be good. Well, let me tell you something, your sins are forgiven. But you come to Christ, and, and if you heard this preach sometimes, and, and many of us have, you got troubles, you got difficult, you come to Christ, your life's going to get better. You know, sometimes your life will get worse. Circumstance. Sometimes. Now, Christ lives within you, and there's a joy, and there's a direction. You understand that. But he never says he's going to remove these difficulties. If you're walking with him, you're going to have difficulties. Look at 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is what happens to us. Some trial comes in and we're shocked, we're surprised. Well, he says, don't be surprised. Why are we surprised? Because we think it's supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy, it's going to be hard. So you want to go work out, and, and, and you want to get your biceps bigger and get your quads and a six-pack and all that. Instead of drinking a six-pack, you want to have a six-pack. You, you know, so what are you going to do? You're going to go, go through pain. You're going to go through difficulty. You're going to choose it because that's the only path to get there. 
Don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. There's that word again, testing. It's what James said. It's what Peter said earlier. As though some strange thing were happening to you. It is not strange for a believer to be tested. It's normal for a believer to be tested. And, and you know, sometimes, you know, we think about the world and what's happening in the world and all the nonsense and the immorality and the godlessness, and we think, you know, God ought to judge that. You know what? One day God will judge it. But look at verse 17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, judgment is coming. But isn't it interesting? Judgment begins first with those in the household of God. Why? Because he wants us to be different. And he doesn't want us to be doing that double life thing and that hypocrite thing. So, so how does he keep me from that life of hypocrisy and that life of being double-minded? What does he do? How does he do it? He sends me trials. And the trials which weigh me down and frustrate me and threaten to crush me, drive me to him, and then I've got to work out my faith, and I've got to test my faith, and as I am in the struggle and dealing with what I don't want to deal with, and it keeps coming up and up and up, so I'm doing more reps and more reps and more reps, what's happening? I'm developing muscle in my life. And that leads me to maturity. There are some men who are giants. Uh, one of them was John Knox. John Knox was a man who uh, had a phenomenal impact on Scotland. Uh, when the Reformation, th there, there are certain times where God will earthquake the world. He'll just shake it to the core. And one of those times was the Reformation. When Martin Luther, this guy who was a, a Roman Catholic. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. I'm talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. They used to teach a course in school called history. <laughs> but now they teach political correctness and all this stuff. But it used to be, even in public schools, you'd study history, world history, and you'd read about the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who was trying to earn his way to God and earn forgiveness. And he would, so, you know, he was trying to light candles and, you know, walk on his knees and do penance and do all this stuff. And uh, long story short, he's reading one day in the book of Romans that the just shall live by faith. And the Spirit of God revealed to him that the only way he could ever be forgiven of his sins was by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for him. And it only changed his life, but he began to preach that and he began to teach it. And he began to stand against the Roman Catholic Church because the way they built all those magnificent cathedrals is that they came up with a thing called indulgences. And they came up with something called purgatory. And for your relatives that were not quite in hell and not quite in heaven, but are in purgatory, which, by the way, is not in the Bible, the way you get them out of purgatory is that you could write a check for the new cathedral for 500 bucks and... For 500 bucks, you could lessen their time in purgatory by 500 years and also help put in a window. And that's how they raised the money. And Martin, this is, this is absolutely true. The guy, if you, if you go read about this, you'll read about a guy named Tetzel. And he was the prime bond salesman for the indulgences for the cathedrals. And Martin Luther stood up and fought him and took him on. 
and his life was threatened and amazing stuff. And, and what happened was God began to reform, and so you had the Reformation. And then you had other great men. One of the great men, and this thing rippled through Europe, and, and one of the great men was a guy by the name of John Knox, and John Knox was a Scot, and John Knox was wondrously converted, and, uh, and he was used by God. He was used by God in a remarkable way, and his life to this day has ripple effects, even though he lived hundreds of years ago. Uh, one of the things that happened to John Knox as a young believer, well, let me read this section uh, from the book for Kirk and Covenant. Kirk is the Scottish word for church. Warren Lewis, brother of C.S. Lewis, makes the point bluntly. Until the coming of the concentration camp, the galley held an undisputed preeminence as the darkest blot on Western civilization. A galley, said a poetic observer shudderingly, would cast a shadow in the blackest midnight. You say, a galley? A, a galley is where they would chain men underneath the deck of the boat, and they would row the boat as slaves. To be a galley slave was the worst curse that could be put on a human being. Lewis was writing of life in the galleys a century after John Knox rode in them. You see, this great man, this great preacher, this man who affected hundreds of thousands, if not millions for Christ, as a young man, was a slave in a galley for 19 months. One man described life as a galley slave this way. Life on board when the galley was at sea was a sort of hell's picnic, for there was really no accommodation for anyone. For the convicts, there was, of course, no question of sleep. Cooking facilities were primitive, and no one ever washed the the ship crawled with vermin from stem to stern. From below came the constant clank of chains, the crack of whips on bare flesh, screams of pain and savage growls. At each oar, all five men must rise as one at each stroke, push the 18 feet oar forward, dip it in the water, and pull with all their force, dropping into a sitting position at the end of each stroke. One would not think, says a Huguenot convict, that it was possible to keep it up for half an hour. Yet I have rowed full out for 24 hours without pausing for a single moment. Now that was John Knox's life for 19 months. Later on, uh, Knox spoke of that period of time in his life as a time of torment. Years after, he spoke of the sobs of his heart and how he was sore troubled by corporal infirmity. His body was a walking wreck. Later, um, the writer Douglas Wilson asked this question. Why was a man of Knox's ability sent to row in the French galleys for 19 months? It was not because God thought that the French needed some additional help in moving their ships around. Rather, he was shaping and molding Knox for what he would have to endure. God is in his heaven. He does whatever he pleases. It has been well said, this is brilliant, it has been well said that the kingdom of God advances through a series of glorious victories cleverly disguised as disasters. One more time. It has been well said that the kingdom of God advances through a series of glorious victories cleverly disguised as disasters. 
the trials that you encounter and that I encounter, they're victories as our faith is tested. And so many times we look at our lives and we say, this is utter disaster. This is utter chaos. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I planned on. This, this is incredibly disappointing. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'll tell you something interesting about John Knox. It's a great book. Here's another book I've got. It's not written by a Christian. This book is called How the Scots Invented the Modern World by Arthur Herman. It's a remarkable book of history about what happened in the nation of Scotland and the men that came out of Scotland and how they had an impact upon every aspect of Western civilization, how they impacted the United States of America, how they impacted the revolution and the writing of the Declaration of Independence, all coming out of Scotland. Now, this guy starts this book by talking about a certain man who he doesn't like. Any guess on who the man is that he speaks of? It's John Knox. Uh, he didn't like Knox. This guy doesn't like Knox. But he has to acknowledge the whole rest of the book is the result of the fruit that came out of Knox's life and influence that began as a man was a galley slave for 19 months. It's a remarkable book. I'll give you just a couple shots here. At the end of the introduction, he says, in fact, without an appreciation of Scotland's Presbyterian legacy, which came from John Knox. By the way, John Knox used to pray, give me Scotland or I die. He'd pray that for hours. God, give me Scotland. Let me see souls come to you in Scotland, which was a dark place. In fact, without an appreciation of Scotland's Presbyterian legacy, the story of the Scots' place in modern civilization, he says, would be incomplete. Um, I write at the top here as I read this. This book is anti-Knox. But he starts chapter 1 this way. Just as the German Reformation was largely the work of a single individual, Martin Luther, so the Scottish Reformation was the achievement of one man of heroic will and tireless energy, John Knox. And that's his compliment. And then the rest of the time, he talks about his austere and harsh dogmas that the Bible really was the literal word of God. God save us. He talks about the church, how the church became the center of life in villages in Scotland because Knox preached the gospel immense persecution. Uh, but how could he stand up against persecution? Because he became a strong man going through the, the fire of the galleys as being chained for 19 months. He talks about the impact of Knox upon John Locke, and Locke is considered the primary influence on our founders. Uh, he talks about, I'll just, I'll just give you this. What, what I'm trying to show you guys is that trials and suffering are for a reason, and oftentimes we can't see. They make no sense to us. Even this guy, who is, all I can figure out is anti-Christian and anti-Bible and anti-Knox, he, he talks about the fact that Scotland, before any other nation in the world, set up schools for children. Uh, Scotland, in just a short period of time, went from, went from complete illiteracy to the highest literacy rate of any nation in the world. And it was all because of John Knox. Because a man was influenced by Knox, he wrote a book called uh, The Act for Setting Schools. And, and I'll just give you a glimpse of this. He says, the reason behind all this was obvious. 
Boys and girls, why did they want them to read? Why did they want them to go to school? So they could learn to read. Read what? Read the Word of God. Uh, boys and girls must know how to read the Holy Scripture. Knox's original 1560 book had called for a national system of education. Not a liberal left wing, but one based on the Word of God. Eighty years later, Parliament passed the first statute to this effect. And then you read about the results that there was a higher literacy rate, and then all these great minds came out of Scotland, came affected countries. I don't know if I'm making any sense here. Here's what I'm trying to say. Oh, you know what? I guess here's what I'm trying to say. You know what this book is? This guy is writing about the fruit of John Knox's life. That's what he's writing about. And, and I'm going to tell you something. When that guy was a slave in chains in that ship, the last thing he ever thought was that there was any rhyme or reason or sense to what God was putting him through. But God was preparing him for a work. And God was keeping him from being a hypocrite. He had to stand up to brutal, brutal queens who slaughtered Christians as sport and did it in the name of God. Um, now, is that what God's going to do in your life? Probably not. But can I say this to you? The same God that had a purpose and plan for Knox's life has a purpose and plan for your life. The sufferings and the struggles that we go through do several things. One of them, it keeps us from being a hypocrite. Because as he tests my faith, you know the problem with hypocrites? Their faith is never tested. Never tested. They, and if you test their faith, it's false. It's a counterfeit faith. But when you're walking with Christ, when you love Christ, and your faith is tested, you go into the fire, that, that faith becomes stronger. And you become stronger. And then God is preparing you for your unique slot in life. I don't know what it is. You're, not gonna need, you're probably not going to lead a reformation. But God has got every guy in here strategically placed. The trials aren't wasted. The trials are not random. The trials are on purpose. The trials are for a reason. And the trials are to equip you and to equip me for the work that God has for us to do. That's why we go through trials. Sometimes it's 3,000 degrees. But without the 3,000 degrees, hey guys, if you catch nothing else, catch this. Without the 3,000 degrees, the impurities will never rise to the top. And they'll never be swept off. See, that's what happens with a hypocrite. The impurities never come out. They're impure to the core. Now, that's what we don't want. And when you begin to get a grip on that, when you begin to get a little bit of grip, you can stand back and you say, I count it as joy that God is keeping me from hypocrisy by taking me through this fire. This wasn't real light tonight. Did you notice that? Not a lot of jokes. Not a lot of horsing around. This is real life stuff, guys. This is what God's up to. And you know what? Can I be honest with you? Sometimes I get sick and tired of it. I mean, I don't know. Do you? Do you ever? you ever get tired of it? How long do I have to endure this? You know, I, I, I'm going to close with this. And I saw the five-minute sign. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I really thought, I, I, I didn't really want to teach James this time around. You know why I didn't want to teach it? Because I knew if I taught it, 
I was going to go through it. I, I, I had to think about that. But I really felt it was what we were supposed to do. And it's interesting to me that I was up last night at about 2.45 because I couldn't sleep. And Mary said, you okay? And I said, I'm just, you know, I didn't tell her the truth. I said, I'm, I'm just kind of wired, you know. I didn't tell her I was struggling with something. What I was struggling with was this passage and a couple things that I'm dealing with. I've been dealing with this for a while. It's always interesting to me when you teach the scriptures, God kind of wants you to live it out. I guess so I won't be a hypocrite in this area of my life. But at 2.45, I was really struggling. So you know what I did? I got up and I drank some apple juice. I had some Jack Daniels. <laughs> I didn't do that. But you know what I did? I got up at 2.45 and I had to crack open my Bible because I was really struggling. I thought, I'm not going to go to sleep unless I get some truth lodged right here in my head. Because I'm fighting some stuff and I need some truth. So I got up at 2.45 and I started reading. I just started reading. And I had to get settled. And I had to get settled, not by Jack Daniels. I had to get settled by truth, by the Word of God. And then, and, and I was reading a passage, and I, okay, okay. I'm okay. This is right. This is true. It's okay. Now I can go to sleep. That's what we did. Taylor. If your name is even remotely Kent, I think we need you. He's worse off tonight than I am. Let's pray. All right? Lord, thank you. We do get tired. We do get weary. You turn up the heat and we get tired of it. But thank you for the process. And thank you that you're not letting us go the wrong way. Encourage us tonight. Encourage us with truth. We can't live off anything else. In Jesus' name we pray.